Yeah, go ahead and find a landing spot. The closest plastic chair to you would, would do. My name is Luke, if we've not met. And I, do, I see some, some, some new faces as well. I look forward to meeting you after the service if I get a chance. Um, but hey, before we even get started, and typically this is where we talk about Central City, I'm going to do that at the end of the service because we're doing something very special today. There's a special moment and a special announcement as a church. You don't want to leave early, okay? So sometimes we try to get a jump on the crowd by leaving in the middle of the, of the musical worship set. I would challenge you to not do that today. You'll miss out on something very, very beautiful. But before we get started, I wanted to mention that we have a a great guest today. His name is Jeff. Hey, Jeff, raise your hands. You're married to this guy, right? Yeah, raise your hand too. That, that's Jeff Martin, and he is the lead pastor at Redeemer Church in Johnson City. So most of you, if you've been here for a long time, you've become familiar with John Fouché, who's been a personal coach to me and a very, very close friend to us as a church. Um, he left to do some work in Raleigh, and Jeff is his replacement which should tell you a lot about this guy because those are some very big shoes to fill. John planted that church, and it grew up to close to around 400-ish people, and they were looking for a person that could carry that church to a, a, a new place in a new season, and Jeff is who they landed on, and they landed on him quickly, and that should tell you a lot about this guy. And the more I get to know him, the more I love him, and the more I'm excited to have him here in East Tennessee. He actually went to the same school I did, Texas Tech University, right? Not really known for turning out church planners, by the way, um, but we're trying to represent the best we can. So after the service, be sure to thank this guy for the service that him and his family have taken on in planting churches in this East Tennessee area. I look forward to working with this guy. Look forward to working with you for the next bunch of years, you know, as we plant churches together. So very thankful for you to be here. Um, it's an honor to have you here with us. Uh, but if we could just go ahead and get started. Turning your Bible to John 3. If you have a Bible, if not, it will be up on the screen. John 3, and if you're quick and you know your Bible well enough, you can go to Isaiah 6 as well. That's going to be a partner passage with us today. Uh, this is a little bit of a different sermon for me, but we will focus on two passages. That will be in John 3 and Isaiah 6. And while you're turning there, there is some fascinating research that I've tripped on from a New York academic researcher. Her name is Dr. Audrey Longson. And she has recently put out some information and some data at a conference that she was a part of in San Francisco, looking at the interplay between reality TV and narcissism. Reality TV and the moral trends of a young generation in the Western world, right? So I don't know how much money they spent on this study, but the more I read about it, the more I thought I probably could have saved them a few dollars. Her focus was on our culture's fascination with self and self above everybody else around them at their cost for the individual's benefit. And what she found with a lot of studies, a lot of surveys, a lot of models, she actually found that there was a deep correlation between reality TV of any flavor. So it could be the Real Housewives of Whereversville, all the way to running around naked with a spear and surviving, and every reality show in between. It didn't matter which one. But if you were steeped in reality TV, then she found that it was going to be easy for you to develop tendencies towards the need, the requirement, to see yourself as very, very special, even if it comes at the expense of others around you. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't think anyone here didn't know that. 
I think it's easy for us all to see that our culture, our generation today, especially in the Western world, is fascinated and fixated on being the center of the universe, being in the middle of everything, being big. We want to win. Winning. We want to win. I like how social media, and I know Facebook is the pinata that all pastors kick every Sunday morning. I'm not doing that now, but I do think it's interesting <laughs> how it gives us a platform. I am bashing it, by the way, so I am kicking it just to make I know what I'm doing. That it gives us a platform to live out large in front of the whole world, taking pictures of ourselves, commenting about ourselves, and waiting for the emoticons to roll in, right? The thumb, the heart. The smiley face. We're inventing more and more because we want to share our winning moment, our center of the world moment. In fact, way back in the old days when we were meeting in the other school in our first year as a church, we did a series called Will You Like Me? And part of that was uh, looking at how social media interacted with the fear of man, which is interesting because one of the things we found is that if you really want one of your posts or pictures, if you really want one of your updates to go viral, which means for some of you, like six people commenting on it and five people liking it. That might be viable for some of us, right? That the best thing you can do is talk about yourself. Statistically, those who talk about themselves in their status update get the most interaction from other people. I, me, myself, here's my day. It's a wonder that pictures turned selfie. We turned the cameras around, right? It's the same thing. We want to win. We want to win. We also have two people running for president right now. Some of you say three, but let's be honest, there's really two. Two people running for president that know this. So in different ways and at different times, they're telling you, we want to make you great. We want to give you what you want. Check that. We want to give you what you deserve. You can be great. You could win. Elect me, and I will make you a winner. Vince Lombardi said that winning is not everything, but wanting to win is. I love that phrase, winning. Have y'all noticed, if you're, if you're maybe under the age of 40, you've probably picked up that that has become a catchphrase today. Winning, hashtag winning. Someone is winning when they do something cool, or winning whenever they do something uh, extraordinary. I actually traced the roots and studied the evolution of the word winning, and it doesn't go back very far. A few years ago, Charlie Sheen did an interview with USA Today, right? If you watch that interview, you were probably like me, wondering, is this for real? Does he need help, some buddies, or is he just playing a big joke on the world? Because there was a collective aghast at that video, and that's why it went viral. The video was him talking about how many different directions he was winning. All of what the world values, too, by the way. Winning with money, winning with accolades, winning with awards, winning with the ladies, just winning. And then it started to go viral. Memes, videos, winning. Are we winning? Are you winning? Just as Charlie Sheen has a list of R-rated activities that tell him he's winning, we all have a list of some sort that tell us whether or not we are winning or maybe we're even losing. Christians have a list too. I want you to think just for a moment, consider. As you walk in today, with all of what's swirling in your world, am I losing today or am I winning? 
I mean, really. According to the world's standards, am I making it? Am I center enough trying to be center of the universe? Am I living large? Do I have joy, real joy today? Being complete and winning and having joy, it always feels like something we reach for and grab for, but never quite something that we get, right? It always feels like it's almost here. It always feels like it's just over the edge. If we could just reach over and grab it and pull it, and then we'll be there. But it, it rarely feels like we're ever there, winning, totally content and totally satisfied. And I think that's why we see even trends, even in, in our writing. Have you noticed that most nonfiction books are to help you become the center of the universe? They're to help you make more money, be more popular, progress, have less sin. They're to help you win, right? In fact, there was a recent study by a group of academics who partnered with Google using one of their special search engines that counted words and phrases and all of written literature between 1500 and today. Consider that, right? Consider that every published work in the last 500 plus years was combed over by this search engine and they looked for certain words and phrases and how they were concentrated and how they escalated. They looked for trends and what they found was there was a definitive shift away from pluralistic speech, communal speech, and even supportive speech, right? There was a drift away from that. Words like you and us and we all the way to words like I, myself, and me. And they said it was incredibly noticeable. Even phrases like you can do it slowly became phrases like I can do it and me. Look out for myself came up an extraordinarily amount of times. I can do it. I come first. Our pictures went into selfie mode, but so did our writing, it looks like. We turned the camera around. I think the reason for all of this that I'm talking about, for Charlie Sheen's personality, for the shift in our written works, for the effects of reality TV on, on a lot of people, I think it's in us. It's part of our blood makeup our DNA. I think we were pre-wired to search and to scramble for the win at all costs. Us above others. Me central above all. I think it reaches and stretches all the way back to the garden. A garden that somebody broke. Because Adam, and this is amazing to me, I'm sure it's amazing to you, surrounded by perfection. Adam, surrounded by God's presence Adam, surrounded by God's beauty, still felt incomplete, still felt lacking. He still felt like he was losing. He didn't feel like he was the center of the universe. He had the very presence of God around him. It was because he did not feel like he was in the middle that he wanted to shove God from the middle and make room for himself. It was not good enough for Adam to walk beside God in the cool of the day. He needed God to be moved over so he could be in the middle. No longer would he be behind God. He would be before him. I think I understand his thoughts as Adam did this in the original fall. Because I think it's the same thoughts I have. And I think it's the same thoughts you have from time to time. That God is not really here to help me. He's really not all that beautiful, but he's oppressive. And I think I could do better without him. I think if, if I was in the middle, instead of God being in the middle, I think then I would have complete joy, but I think he's holding me back. Now, we would never say this out loud, but is that not the root behind every sin? 
Every sin is our ability to reach for something, saying, I can get this because God's not going to give it to me, and it will help me more than God can help me. It is more beautiful than God is. Ever since the fall and ever since Adam and our original parents broke that garden, humanity has tried very hard to be the middle of the cosmos, winning, looking for anything that would make us feel joyful and feel complete, but the whole time wondering if God is holding it back from us. And here's a side note, too, and it's not really the subject of the teaching today, but don't be panicked whenever you see the nightly news. Don't wonder in, in total head-scratchingness that, <laughs> why, why, why do we have bathroom apocalypse? I don't understand what's going on with the world today. Terrorist activities here in our country. I don't know what's going on today. Listen, that's not an American thing. That's just a humanity thing. What we are seeing is what we were pre-wired to do, and that is to put ourselves above all else around us. I don't think it's the end of America, and I don't think it's the end of the good old days. It's just good old-fashioned sin. I say this because there's a little bit of a panic, I notice, in the church in this selfie generation of America's going to pot. We're going to leave America. We're going to move to Panama because America's going down the tubes. But listen, it's not an American thing. It's a brokenness thing. It's in all of us. If America is going down the tubes today, then that means it has always gone down the tubes because we have always put ourselves above others. That's just how we are wired. I think many of you today walked in here not winning. According to the world standards, have felt like you were losing, disappearing, pushed out on the fringes, yet you reach and you're chasing, aren't you? I think there's a good many of us that are doing life, close proximity with others, that are fascinated with making themselves the center of their universe. And it's obvious to everybody, but it's not obvious to them. And you don't really know how to handle them, do you? Don't know really how to lead them. I think many of you are on mission to this city, carrying the gospel to Knoxville, displaying it, proclaiming it. But it's hard to cut through the chatter because Knoxville, uh, as a city, collectively is fascinated with itself. People love themselves and they will fight and scramble to put themselves above all because they want to win. So I think today will be a helpful conversation in this passage. Right? It's a different passage for us today. Because John, not the Baptist, but the writer of this book, John the, John the Evangelist will say that. He is reintroducing John the Baptist, which is interesting, isn't it? Because John later on says that Jesus does so much that the volumes and the books of the world could not contain them all. So if that's true, why is he wasting more ink on John the Baptist? We already talked about him, right? Move on. I mean, talked about Nicodemus? Move on. Talked about the Pharisees? Move on. Let's look at the new things that Jesus did. But he goes back and reintroduces John the Baptist. Why? Because in this little scenario we're going to read about today, we see two reactions to Jesus. Very interesting. One reaction is trying to win. And one reaction is very content with losing. And one is found complete joy, and the other is found angst. And you would be surprised which one is which. All right, so let's look at the text. This is in John 3.22. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It will help us see Jesus much more clearly. I'm going to read right through it, by the way. We're going to teach it as a whole. Verse 22 in chapter 3. 
After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he has given the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Okay. Only in this scene, this is the only scene in all four of the Gospels, that we have a picture of John and Jesus baptizing at the same time. Right? Jesus goes out into the countryside and is baptizing people. John is about a day's walk away looking for places where there was enough water so that he could baptize, right? Because, and this is my plug for immersion, right? Because they need enough water to go down and to come back up, right? I was thinking about this when I was getting ready this morning, and I thought, man, that's not what I would be looking for. If I was John and I was having to hunt for a new place to baptize people, this is my rubric. No sharks, no snakes, no crocodiles. And I don't even care if it's a puddle. We'll work it out. You know what I'm saying? Some dangerous animals back then during that time. That's why, we use, that's why we use a portable baptismal, by the way. It has nothing to do with it. We're a young church plant. I just know there's no sharks and there's no snakes in that whenever we get in. But Jesus is not doing any baptizing in this time. His disciples are. We see this later on in the book of John. But it's true. He's developing a movement. He's gathering. His public ministry is beginning at this time. I don't want you to miss what's going on, because if you miss this one little point it's going to be difficult to understand the passage. You have two groups of men virtually doing the same thing not too far away from each other. John's disciples baptizing, Jesus' disciples baptizing over here. What happens when you have groups of men doing pretty much the same thing very close to each other? They start competing. I mean, it just goes on to say a dispute arose. Well, I'm sure it did. I'm sure a dispute did arise. Now, the dispute was over purification, and we could only guess what that was about. We don't really know, right? They don't give us a lot of insight at, at the meat, but we know it had something to do with baptism because that's where it lands, right? So if I was there, I can imagine it sounding a little bit like the Jewish guy coming up to John's disciples and saying, hey, listen, 
you guys are doing some stuff with water over here, purification, baptism, whatever, right? But Jesus is doing it over there. His group is growing, and your group is shrinking. What does that mean, guys? I mean, is his water magical, and your water not? Maybe his work has real effect, and your work is kind of just, eh, junior varsity? Just seems to me like there's quite a bit of difference. I think this is why you have the disciples coming very quickly over and saying, hey, teacher, remember that guy you vouched for? Remember the guy that you endorsed? Seems to me like he's stealing all our people. It might feel like that's a pretty big stretch, what I'm suggesting right now. The reason we know that this was the mood of the conversation is there was a jilt in their step as they brought it. You can also tell by John's response, the temperature and the content of his response. He's talking to some frustrated disciples. He's teaching some disciples that feel like they're shrinking, disappearing. You see, before Jesus came along, they were winning. Household names. They were the only, they had the, the market cornered on the baptism game. But with Jesus becoming bigger, it just feels like they're becoming smaller. And that feels a whole lot like losing. And that kind of hurts. And we know this because we feel it sometimes too. This is why when someone brings you extraordinarily good news or extraordinary good news, when they bring it to you, you high five them, right? Because we're excited, but we don't put all our energy into the high five because <laughs> there's a little sliver of us that says, why not me? Right? Don't you? I feel that. Don't you feel that? Gosh, why not me? Right? Got a new job? Ooh, that's great, man. Right? You, an inheritance? That's insane. That's great news. Congratulations. Getting pregnant? You have a kid coming? Here's a big one. You're engaged? Listen, if you're engaged or have, ever have been, whenever you told all your single friends, that's what was going on in all of their hearts. They're high-fiving you, but they hate you inside, secretly hate you, because they're not engaged. <laughs> this is also why we fear new people coming into our small tribes and our, our small clans, especially if their personality starts to eclipse our personality. Right? I used to be the funny guy. Now that guy's in our living room. Now that guy's come to, to Legacy. Now he's at work, and he's the funny guy, and his jokes are kind of funny, and everyone's laughing at him more than they're laughing at me. Hey, I used to be the funny guy around here. Now I'm just going to be the brooding guy, right? Have to have something. You see how this works? Shrinking when others increase? Listen, this is also what happens collectively as a city every single football season. Every single football season here, we could have zero coaches and half the athletes of every other team, and if we don't clinch the division, if we don't clinch some sort of title or ring, Knoxville starts setting things on fire, right? It's nuts here, because if we're losing, that means someone else is winning. And if they're losing, that makes me feel like I'm losing, and I don't want to lose. Someone else's fault that I'm losing, so I'm going to set something on fire, a couch, a car, something, right? If someone else is winning, it feels so much like we are losing. 
Before Jesus screwed up everything for John's baptism club, they were becoming more visible, they were becoming more central, but apparently they had lost sight of what the true win is. So John gently reminds them of where the goalposts are. This is what the win looks like for us. I love John Piper's quote here. It's one of my favorites when it comes to this passage. He says this, God sent him for this. This was God's plan. Gather a people and then give them up. Rise like a star in the wilderness and then burn out like a meteorite. That's the plan. John knows it. And as it happens, his joy increases. John has a couple profound statements in his teaching with the disciples. I think we could just hit those two and coast out of this and get a lot out of this passage. Now, I'm using layman's terms. The first profound statement I see in this is, hey, guys, I'm not the groom. I'm just his buddy. I'm not the center of attention. That's why he's talking about groom and bride. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm the best man. I'm not, the, I'm not the ticket today. Have you ever been to a wedding and seen the goon best man before? I have. I've never been a best man before. I've probably been to over 40 weddings. I do a lot of them, but I've not really ever been the best man. But I've seen my fair share of best men. And twice I've had to pull them aside. And the talk sound a little bit like this. Hey, listen. This is not your gig, right? You're not going to be the MVP of this day. You might have missed the memo. This is about them. You're being a clown, and you want everyone to look at you. You're sabotaging this moment. Stop it. It's goofy, right? That's how the conversation goes, or something that rhymes with that. <laughs> it's not always a great conversation to have. Now, that's a social foul ball, is it not? What if, though, what if that goon were to drunkenly slur his way through the toast, and the toast was about himself, and then go over and kiss the bride on the mouth. What would happen? He would get tased. <laughs> Repeatedly. Everyone who has a taser is tasing this guy. They're lining up. Why? Because in no, in no culture is this accepted. It is universally understood that the groom and the bride, that is their day. They belong together. No one else is to take that moment from them. Muslims agree with this. Mormons agree with that. Everyone agrees with this. It doesn't matter what religion. It's universal that this occur. You know, John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, knows I'm the best man. And you guys aren't going to lead me to act like a goon right now. I'm not competing with him over there. I'm going to shrink back as he grows because Jesus is the hero. Do you notice how different his response is from his followers? Jesus is the hero. He's the center of attention. Let's raise a glass to him. Everybody look at him. He is the one that is on display. He is center. He is winning, which means I'm okay losing. I'm okay losing. I'm okay decreasing. John has to subside, and he doesn't panic. He knows that this gig of being in the middle and becoming large was never his gig to have. Right? We see a wedding picture used here. John's teaching it, John the Baptist, that is. And we see it later on in the Bible because it is very helpful. So if you're not used to church language, or maybe this is all kind of new to you, you will see this as a main theme throughout a lot of the New Testament. 
that Jesus represents a sacrificial groom, right? And the church represents a trusting bride. In fact, we'll see Paul talk about it much later in Ephesians 5. And that is a well-worn passage with pastors whenever they talk with marriages, either before the wedding, after the wedding, all through the marriage, right? Where Paul gives great instructions on the role and the responsibilities of the husband, and then the role and the responsibilities of the bride. And then he says this in Ephesians 5. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's a gospel display for all. And I think this is big for us. Because I think for many of us, you and me, when we look at this passage, I think what's helpful to pull from it is we too many times have forgotten that we are not the MVP in someone else's wedding. The wedding event is between a different groom and a bride. We are not the star. We are not in the middle. We are way out on the periphery of a story that is not about us. Our flesh struggles with this. Our flesh struggles And we might be okay with Jesus increasing, as long as that means we don't decrease, though, right? We can't lose. I'm okay with Jesus winning, but it can't mean that I'm losing. We want Jesus to be grandiose, but not so much that it cuts in on my fame, my glory. It's because our flesh hates disappearing. What about me is the cry of our hearts. I want to win is the hope of our hearts. Self above all, looking out for number one, winning. Why? Why do we do this? Because that's what we feel like joy is going to be waiting for us, complete joy. We feel like once we have won and once we're in the middle, that's where complete joy is, which leads me to the second statement that John has. The second profound statement is this, and this is so profound even though it's short, my joy is complete. Have you ever been there? Is this... Not another thing that we chase and we grab for, but we feel like we don't get too often. I get the feeling that his attitude is super cool in this moment. I'm good with Jesus increasing. In fact, I'm more than good with it. I'm fine to decrease. Guys, listen, I kind of feel like this might be one of the first times I've, I've been in that perfect place in my life, totally satisfied as I look around. My joy is complete. My joy is maxed out. That's what he's communicating to his disciples right now. He is satisfied in his role. Are you there today? Satisfied in where you're at? Satisfied in Jesus being in the middle, even if you're not? Satisfied if God seems to be winning, even with his gospel over the city, but you seem to be losing day after day? Are you satisfied? Or are you just losing? What if winning means disappearing, though? Because I think John's on to something here. What I mean is, what if winning and finding complete joy is all wrapped up in Jesus becoming bigger, more central, as we drift off way out onto the edges of his beautiful, heroic story? What if that is where complete joy is found? Because that's what he's saying right here. That's what he's telling us. Think about what if, this, what if this whole scenario was opposite than it shows us in the Bible. And we read the disciples coming up to John the Baptist and they say, listen, John, got some bad news, man. That guy you vouched for, the one you endorsed, he's growing and we're shrinking. What if John went, you know, I've noticed that same thing. Dang it. We got we to gotta stop that. What are we going to do? Staff meeting. You get a staff meeting, I got it. we're going to hire a youth pastor. 
We're going to hire a youth pastor because if we get their kids, we get the people, and it means we get their money. If we get their money, we can build something, which means we get more people. That's what we're going to do. We're going to change our logo. We're going to send mailers all over Jerusalem because we are not going to lose. We would be weirded out by that, would we not? We'd fire up the flux capacitor, go all the way back there and shake him and say, bro, play your role. You're the best man. Quit acting like a goon. You're the best man. You're supposed to point to him, not compete with him. I'm so glad he doesn't do this here. I'm so glad I have a good model here. My question for myself all the time is, will my joy be complete if I disappear? If no one knows who I am, will my joy be complete if I lose and continually lose and lose some more and get smaller and smaller and smaller? Can my joy be complete? Can I be content and satisfied in who God is? I think the root reason our heart yearns for magnificent glory is because we are not buying into the magnificent glory that is God himself. When we don't trust and take in and drink deeply of the glorious nature of who God is, we will try to manufacture or steal it ourselves. Someone has to be glorious. And if we can't see it in God, we will see it in ourselves. I think I'm less shocked in this passage that Adam sinned in the garden when surrounded by God's wonderfulness and his perfectness. I think I'm less shocked by that than the fact that it took him as long to sin as it did. Because I think we're all like him. I think we can all get there from zero to 60 pretty quick. Let me explain what I mean. Look at Isaiah 6. This is the partner passage I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 6. I'm going to read it to you, just seven verses. In the, in the first verse, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He's, okay, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. That's pretty awesome, because none of you have seen it. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. I'd be flipping out if they had two wings. You know what I'm saying? None of you have ever seen anyone with two wings before. This is pretty crazy to see someone with six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And this is his response. And I said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Listen, that deserves a sermon series of its, of its own, that whole passage. But what I want you to see in it today is that Isaiah experienced things that made him flood out and retreat to the very edges of the domain right there. He wasn't in the middle of it all going, hey, what up? What about me? Check me out. I'm pretty cool. I could be the center of the universe. 
he saw God's glory and he said, woe is me. I have a vision of him in my mind. I'm wondering if he was not cowering, trying to shield himself a little bit, thinking in his mind, I shouldn't be here. This is nuts what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing, the smells, the sights. Angels, the Lord, I shouldn't be here. That's what it feels like. The big difference between Isaiah and us is that we see the cross and he did not. We see the atonement, a cross where a king hung, an empty tomb where where victory was expunged out of it. We see that. Isaiah didn't see this. I think we see God's glory more than Isaiah did. I don't think that's heresy. I think we see more of God's glory than even Isaiah did. Even with him being in heaven and staring at angels, we see glory on the cross. We see glory in an empty tomb. In Jesus, we see God's face reflected to us. That's what Jesus is. He's the face of God reflected to mankind. Think about it. God himself puts on the clothing of man, puts on our skin to be among us. And he came full of the Holy Spirit. It says that the the Spirit was given without limit in the passage we just read. And he came as a sacrificial groom to win a bride. The bride, of course, is the church of Christ, you and me, if you were in fact in God. Now this found bride, the church, this found bride was not found clean, nor was she found devoted. This is where I see the glory of God. This bride would, in fact, not act very appropriately. This bride was not found with a clean dress on, if you know what I mean. This bride was found with a history, capital H. This bride was not found with a purity ring on, waiting for her husband. In fact, this bride would not take long for her to see other suitors. That's what we do. This is who we are. Isaiah is blown away by what he sees when he is in the throne room of God, but we have seen greater than Isaiah did on that day because we have seen this rescue. We have seen God's glory beautifully displayed before all of us. I think what's amazing is that with the glory that we have in our view, rather than celebrate God's win over death, we start mourning that we don't win by the world's standards. What about me? Still comes out of our heart. What about me? Yeah, I see God's glory. Cross is pretty cool. But what about me? I don't feel like I'm winning. I don't feel like I'm progressing. I feel like deep repentance is needed here. Deep repentance. And we'll have an opportunity to do that here in a moment. I think a cry that God would show us where we squirm and where we twist, asking ourselves, what about me? I'm uncomfortable with God being in the middle. I want to be in the middle. I'm uncom- like Adam, I'm uncomfortable with him always defining what is right and wrong you know, and following his lead. I want to be in charge. Me. We have to repent. God gives us a great model in John where he says, I'm good. I'm satisfied. My joy is complete over here. Can we be full of joy in our boring normal? Where we're losing, disappearing not noteworthy. You know, we grow as Christians, not by performing better, but by seeing better, picturing a better glory, not the one we see in the mirror as pertains to us being above all others. 
but the glory we see in God as he's displayed it for us in the gospel. Part of me thinks this, though. Part of me, if I'm being honest, feels like that if I could just see God's glory like Isaiah did, then I would perform better. I would be a different, I would grow. If I could just see God's glory, kind of like the prophets did, like Isaiah does here. But the fact is, is I see more. I already have it. I already have it. So what do we do? What do we do? We ask the Holy Spirit to show us where we've been unsatisfied with his glory to the point where we try to manufacture our own or steal it from God either way. And I think the Holy Spirit leads us to this place where we squirm. What about me? What about me? What do you do when you're doing life in close proximity with those who are struggling with being the center of the cosmos? Everything's about them all the time. And they're going to win. Even if it's at everyone else's cost and deficit, they're going to make it. How do you handle that person? Do you spank their hand? Do you tell them that what they're doing is wrong and they need to act better? That's what we normally do, right? You have to show them more beautiful glory. That's how you help your friends. Lead them to a place where glory exists so they're not satisfied with their own anymore. They're only satisfied in the glory of God, right? Because inward, inward growth doesn't come by outward modifications. Inward growth and sanctification, it doesn't come by just changing the way we act and outward things applied to us. It comes from the inside. It wasn't until I saw God as big and as beautiful that I hungered and desired to change and to get away from some old things and to tackle some new things. It's to see God as beautiful. That's why our sermons... Listen, when we preach up here, and any of our preaching team, they will all tell you that we bone down on this. This is one of the few things that we must have and we require. Up here, when we preach to you, our sermons are to lead you to see Jesus as the winning hero. Jesus has to be the winning hero. Because if Jesus isn't the winning hero, then it's too easy to preach a sermon where you could win. And then guess who the hero is then? You teaching you to be the winning hero. And if we've done that, it's no longer a Christian sermon because Jesus is no longer the hero. And then finally, what do we do with the city? Listen, when you pray for Knoxville, and that's another sermon on all of itself too, is when you pray, not if you pray. My gosh, please be praying for this city. It needs it. When you pray for Knoxville, ask God to show people that them being in the middle of their own story just leads to a super sad and tragic story. None of us make a good central character. None of us. There's just horrible movies to watch. That complete joy is found when we're not even a bit character, but we're extended way out onto the fringes of the story. We're not even a footnote. We could be content disappearing and decreasing for God's glory before us. So those who you are working with now, preaching to, ministering to, getting to know, hearing their story. You have missional work to do. Where is it in their life that they say, what about me? You've seen it. They might not say it just like that, but something comes out, the, the what about me moment, what is it? What are they trying to win? Where do they begin to panic when something decreases in their life? Whatever it is, that is where they're trying to get their glory. That's the point of contact for you whenever you minister to them and show them the gospel. You have to know where they're gaining their glory already, right? That's their false Jesus. Listen, go ahead and stand with me, and we'll just 
finish reading this passage. I want to read it over you and then pray for you as we go into worship, and Chris will come and explain what that looks like. But when I say we have deep repentance, friends, this is a great opportunity for you to repent for being the MVP of someone else's wedding, for being central, for squirming at the thought of you decreasing while Jesus increases, or while anyone else increases around you for that matter. This is the word of the Lord for us in Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let me pray for you. Lord, we know that you are inviting many to the marriage supper of the Lamb that there are some in here who are distant from you, not connected to you, very far from a feast like this. But Lord, I know that when they see your glory, it is intoxicating, it is irrefutable, it cannot be denied, it cannot be suppressed. Grace comes and it changes irrevocably. And I pray that happens today, today. Lord, that you would become king in lives today. And Father, I know there are hearts in here that are wandering, they are looking, and they are tired of their sad, sad story because it's really hard being the center of the world. It's hard work being the center of the universe. Lord, I pray that you would show us that that was not a role meant for us, that we could be content we could be content decreasing and being very normal, celebrating you as you increase and conquer and grow and heal and rescue. And Lord, I also pray for those who are squirming, saying, this is not enough. What I have is not enough. I must succeed. I must win. Winning becomes the theme of some of our lives. And I pray that you would heal us, heal our hearts, lead us to repentance, where we see where we are failing, failing to see you as beautiful, and that you would show us, that you would crack the heavens and let us see how you really are, not, not by looking and seeing the same things that Isaiah did, but by just seeing your cross and your tomb more clearly. The fact that we are the dirty bride that you came to rescue. We were the stained one, not even looking for you. Lord, help us who are unsatisfied. When we see you clearly, we will be satisfied. Let that be the cry of our heart today. Lord, I want to see you clearly. I want to see your glory. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.